The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Uh, before we begin, we just begin with a brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is the truth and our only source of truth. Everything else, what we feel, what we see, our emotions must be brought under submission to your word. We pray that you would help us to do so this morning. Pray that you would help me to speak your truth accurately and help all of us to live this truth in our lives, to be doers in your name. Amen. So if uh, you have been with us for the past months as we go through a series in this summer on sanctification, this great business of becoming like Christ, this job that we have between our salvation and our future glorification, you know that this great work of sanctification requires just that, work. We can't do this in just some moment of complete passive submission to God where we finally just let go and let God, or where we finally surrender it all, and God from then on has complete control of our lives and there is no more struggle in this life. No, you know, if you've been with us, that this is a labor. This is a work of sanctification. Several weeks ago, Todd preached from Philippians 2, 12 to 13, that we must work out our salvation through the power of God and that with fear and trembling. And I'll be assuming some of what was said in that message, so if you didn't get a chance to listen to that yet, I would encourage you to look that up online and hear it, because this sermon will sound somewhat one-sided without some of the balance of that sermon. But today we will look specifically at the mentality necessary for this great matter of sanctification. What do you need to consider about life? What do you need to think about? What does your perspective on yourself and on life need to be if you are to grow and if you are to proceed in this matter of being conformed to the image of Christ? So first, let us look briefly at Philippians itself. We know that this was written by Paul when he was in prison in Rome during his first imprisonment. And he was rejoicing in his imprisonment. And he wrote this letter to the church at Philippi, which he planted several years or a decade or so before. And he wanted to encourage them. He was rejoicing in their salvation and their growth. We see in Philippians chapter 1 how he is confident in verse 6 that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So he begins this letter with a focus on their sanctification. This is what he's concerned about for these believers. He's begun a good work, Christ has, in these Philippian believers and Paul is confident that he will bring it to completion, bring it to perfection. He will bring them all the way to glory. But Paul is not simply content with that knowledge. He wants to do whatever he can to help these Philippian believers along. So he says, I yearn for you. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul wasn't satisfied with the confidence that God was going to do this work. He wanted to do everything he can to help these believers along. He wanted to do everything he can to push them along, prod them along, pull them along, whatever it took to bring them to more and more love to be more and more filled with this fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And so that is Paul's main purpose in writing this letter. The text we'll be considering this morning is Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. I'll begin reading, however, at verse 7 so that we can kind of see the flow of the text. He has just described here, the great works that he had done as an unbeliever, as a Jewish Pharisee, how he had 
been so righteous and so zealous in his pursuit of the law. And so, but he turns in verse 7 and says, Whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think in this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So I considered entitling this sermon, The Mature Mentality, Part 2. But since this is only one sermon, I figured that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. But we have in this section what Paul is considering, which is why I backed up to verse 7, because in that section from 7 to 11, Paul explains how he considers everything that was gained as loss. That is the mentality of the Christian. Every work we did in self-righteousness, everything that we thought we could do to earn righteousness and good standing with God, we must consider loss. We must consider that rubbish. But then the verses we'll consider today is where Paul presents the second half of this Christian mentality, this mature mentality, where we consider that we have not yet made it our own, but one thing we do, we press on. So just like all of us who have been saved but have not yet reached glory, Paul is in the middle of this great transaction. He has, like we said, considered everything as loss. He's given up everything that he had. Everything that he had that he valued, everything that he had that he thought would be good for him, everything that he thought would win him happiness in another life, he's given it all up. It's gone. He's left it behind. And he's done that in order to gain Christ. And in a sense, he has Christ. But in another important sense, he doesn't have him yet. He's in this middle period where he's given up everything that he had, but he doesn't yet have what he gave all that other stuff up to have. He's in this somewhat awkward middle period where it's as if he has nothing. And so he must then strain on. And that is really the context of this straining. He's in a place where he is without anything because he's given up everything else to gain Christ, but he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he hasn't got him yet. He's still waiting to fully have Christ. And so he must strain on in order to get there. In, Paul 7, in verse 7 through 11, Paul lays out the glorious truth that we celebrate in the Revelation, in the Reformation, that there is nothing we can do to earn our acceptance with God, that Christ must do everything. We must wholly submit to his sacrifice on our behalf, and we must commit ourselves to that and trust fully in Christ and in nothing else, in Christ alone. And those, that's the prerequisite to justification. You can't be justified before God if you trust in your own righteousness. You cannot be made in a right standing before God if you trust in your own ability to put yourself in that right standing. And so we could see 7 to 11 as the prerequisites. That's what happens before justification. Then in verse 12 through 16, 
in a sense, we have the prerequisites to sanctification. This is what your mentality must be if you are to grow in Christ, if you are to make progress, if you are to accelerate in becoming conformed to Christ's image. So verse 12 then, we see the beginning of this and we see kind of two, he repeats this twice and he has two main ideas here. Not that I've already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So he says, not that I've already obtained this. He doesn't leave it definite, but there's been a lot of discussion as to what that is. But the best view is it's this whole list that he laid out in the previous verses. He has not already obtained this entire package, Christ, having a righteousness of God through faith in Christ, knowing Christ, knowing the power of Christ's resurrection, sharing in Christ's sufferings, even to death, and attaining to the resurrection. He hasn't gotten all that perfectly yet. He's had a taste. He's had a taste. And he has some of it. And he has had Christ's righteousness positionally applied to his account. But as far as that actually his life looks like Christ's life in righteousness, he's not there yet. He's not yet perfect. And so he wants to clarify, lest anyone think from his previous things where he said, I gave this up to gain Christ, they might think, oh, you've given this up, so now you have Christ says, no, I have not already obtained this. I am not already perfect. Now, I think all of us would have a high regard for the Apostle Paul and his Christ-likeness, his energy, his zeal, his love for Christ. And so I think we would all have to admit that if he is not already perfect, none of us can say that we are already perfect. So this is the state of all of us. We have not already obtained. We are not yet perfect. For Paul has shown how being a Christian requires a complete sacrifice of self. You have to give up everything that you desired and count it as municipal sewage. That is what you must consider all your righteousness because that's how God sees it. You must see it as God sees it. You must sacrifice yourself entirely and trust wholly in Christ. Now, Paul says, you must sacrifice yourself entirely, this time in a positive sense not just giving up that, but now you must sacrifice yourself entirely to this great pressing on, this great straining towards of the Christian life. This that he has not already obtained includes the power of his resurrection. And if you were with us several years ago when we went through Ephesians, you may remember that Paul prayed to the Ephesians around this same time in this first imprisonment that they would know he wants to, the Ephesians, much like he wanted the Philippians to abound more and more and, and to grow into the grace and knowledge of Christ, he wants the Ephesians to know, and he wants them to know these things, then what is the immeasurable greatness, this is verse 19 of chapter 1, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised, us, raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. So Paul says in Ephesians that he wants us to know the power in our lives, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That's right now. God is right now working power in us toward us who believe. That is the power that he raised Christ from the dead with. And that is what Paul says in Philippians he wants to obtain. He wants to attain the power. He wants to know the power of his resurrection. That's not simply having him knowledge of how many watts does it take to raise someone from the dead. He wants to experience this in his life. He wants this to be worked out in every aspect of his life, to fill every fiber of his being, this power that raised Christ from the dead. Paul wants, and he's striving daily, to have that more and more in his life. And that is possible. God has promised us, even in this life, we haven't obtained yet, but we can have Christ's power working in us. And so... We turn now and he says, I press on. I'm not already perfect. First thing we need to do is recognize we're not perfect or we will never strain to get to where we can be more perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. God, Christian, has called you to be a zealot. We often have a negative connotation of that word in our culture. It seems somebody who's wacko, somebody who's crazy, somebody who's just 
you know, off, the, off his own rocker. But Paul commands, we'll get to this in several months, in Romans 12, 9, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. So we're commanded to not only be zealous, but to not be slothful in our zeal. We're to be zealous in our zealotry. And Paul, as he had earlier said, we did not read it, but he says that he surpassed everybody else in his zeal for righteousness before he was a believer. As a Pharisee, nobody outrighteousnessed Paul. He was above everybody. Somebody had zeal for the law, Paul had more zeal. Somebody was committed to obeying the commandments of God, Paul was more committed. So he was a zealous man before that. And you might think when he says, I gave all that up when I became a Christian, you might think, oh, so perhaps he gave up his zeal also. But no. However zealous Paul was as a Pharisee, as a Christian apostle, that zeal, if anything, only increased. But there's a key difference here that he points out in this verse, and that's the motivation. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This motivation is the thing that differentiates self-righteous works that will only condemn you to hell with works wrought in the righteousness of Christ that are commanded, that are necessary, and these are what will make you grow. He says, "Not I, said, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul's union with Christ is already secured. He knows that Christ has made him his own. Christ has grasped him, quite literally. And it is this security in Christ's grasping of him that then causes him to reach forward to try to grasp more and more of the fullness of Christ. Paul's union with Christ, as I've said, is already secure. It cannot be taken away from him. He knows this. He knows that he is Christ. He knows that Christ has laid hold of him. But he knows that he hasn't fully laid hold of Christ yet. And so he wants the completion, the fullness of that union to be brought out. For Paul, a passive contemplation of the work of Christ would be absolutely inconceivable. If you said that, oh, I, my sanctification, I just contemplate the work of the cross, I just think about what Christ has done for me, and that's how I'm sanctified, and then it may or may not work itself out in my life. That would be, he'd look at you like you had your head chopped off. You, he would not understand what you're saying because for him, this must result in action. Christ has died for you and you won't do anything for him? You won't sacrifice yourself for him after his sacrifice for you? That'd be incomprehensible to Paul. The firm knowledge that Christ has seized hold of him, with that knowledge, the Christian must strive to seize more and more of Christ. And it's this same verb that we must seize Christ as he's seized us. And how, Christian, did Christ seize you? Think of it. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You hated God. You were an enemy of God. And Christ Jesus labored through the incarnation, took upon himself our human nature, that he might be a sacrifice for us, that he might give himself up for us. And then after that, we would not even turn to him unless he seized our hearts, raised our hearts to life, and turned us so that we could love him. Christ had to lay hold of our hearts. We wouldn't have just come to Christ and believed in him if he had not seized our hearts and raised our dead hearts to life. That same energy needs to characterize our reaching out to grab and lay hold of Christ. That's what Paul's saying here. It's the same word. Christ has laid hold of us. We must lay hold of Christ to the fullest extent that we can. So how are you doing? As Paul says, none of us is perfect. But does this characterize your life, this purpose to strain and reach forward to lay hold of all the fullness of Christ? Is that characteristic of your life? None of us is perfect. But many times 
we use that phrase as more of an excuse. Well, nobody's perfect, so what do you expect out of me? But Paul sees it completely differently. He says, I'm not perfect, therefore I need to work harder. I'm not perfect, therefore I need to strive more. It's not an excuse, but a spur to action. Now, this pursuit is also a continual pursuit. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He now repeats this point, emphasizing it again. And he identifies with himself with us. Brothers, he's one of us in this. He's not elevated above as some super apostle, some super saint. No, he's identifying with us. He sets himself up as the example insofar as he follows Christ. But he's not above us in some way. He says, brothers, brothers and sisters. Again, he says, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I haven't yet attained the fullness of perfection. I haven't yet fully gained Christ. And this is a warning for us. Don't be complacent. It's not yours yet. Now we know that all of those who are, us who are in Christ are held secure in Christ. Christ's own cannot be lost. He will lose none whom the Father has given him. But at the same time, we need to recognize that how can we know that we are Christ's? How do we know that we are held in that hand of God's? We know that when we are growing when we have increasing fruit in our life. Jesus said that his disciples would bear much fruit. You will know them by their fruit. So if you're bearing fruit of the righteousness, bearing fruit of the Spirit, that is how you know you are Christ's. So if you're not pressing on, that does not necessarily mean that you are not a believer, but it means that you may have no solid ground for assurance because there's no fruit being developed in your life. So this is a warning. Don't be complacent. You haven't reached the prize yet. God will keep all of his children, but he keeps us through the means of our own perseverance. We are commanded to persevere. We must press on. It is those who endure to the end who will be saved. And we have the promise that Christ will keep us, but he keeps us through means, through our own perseverance. So Paul, in contrast to resting complacently, did one thing. But one thing I do. It's actually even more emphatic. Basically, he says, but one thing. Paul was a single-track mind. He didn't have anything else. Nothing else distracted him. Everything else he did, whether that was preaching, discipling, traveling, tent making, all of those things that Paul did, he said, I did one thing. I do one thing. In all those other activities, be they actively preaching the gospel, making tents to support himself and others, Paul had one intention in mind. There was one thing that he was doing, and that was pressing on. Now, you may be wondering at this point, this kind of intensity, this kind of pressing on, this kind of zeal, is that really necessary for every believer? Or is that maybe, you know, Paul, he was an apostle, he was this great man of God, a preacher. Maybe that kind of zeal, pressing on, single-mindedness, where nothing else matters, is that only for him? Well, I thought that at one point, or maybe I just wanted to think that enough that I convinced myself that that's what the text said. But Paul really won't allow for that interpretation. First off, in verse 17, he says, Join in imitating me, brothers, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So we're supposed to imitate Paul and anybody else who is also imitating Paul. So Paul, directly in the context, says, You're supposed to do this too. But further, we have to consider this entire section. And if we say that this zealous pressing on, this single-mindedness where we lay aside all other concerns, all selfish ambition, if we consider that that is the only part that only resides with Paul, 
what are we going to say about verses 7 to 11? Do only the top-tier Christians need to renounce all their self-righteousness to come to Christ? Do only the top-tier Christians need to trust wholly in Christ for their salvation? Certainly not. No, we all must come to Christ and to Christ alone for salvation with nothing in our own hands that we can offer. And so the second section then must also be for all Christians, all believers. And really, this is nothing more than what God commanded all along to his people, that they are to love the Lord their God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is a single-mindedness that has always characterized the people of God. If you are a true believer who has been bought with the blood of Christ, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. You must glorify God with your body. You can't do whatever you want. You can't say, oh, it's my time. I can do what I want with my time. No, your time has been bought by Christ with his blood, and he has done it for the good works that he prepared beforehand for you to walk in. Your time isn't your own. Your body isn't your own. Your life isn't your own. Your career isn't your own. Nothing you have is your own. It's been bought wholesale by Christ when he saved you. This must be characteristic of your life if you're a Christian, in some degree, in some measure. You're not going to be perfect. None of us are perfect in this. My own heart is so deceptive. I know that your heart is too because the Word of God says so. And so many times this past couple weeks as I was thinking about this text, I had to reorient myself. I found myself slipping from the single-mindedness and I had to fight to reorient myself. And so you will have to do this. This is a struggle, as we said. But is this ever characteristic of your life? Is it ever something that characterizes your life that someone would look at you and say, he, she, is single-minded in his or her devotion to Christ. He is single-minded in pursuing holiness. Maybe your unsaved friends think you're a little wacko because you pursue Christ above all else and beyond all else. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher of the last century, put it this way with his typical scriptural sharpness. My dear friend, if you are satisfied with what you regard as your Christian life, you're not a Christian. That's the only thing that can be said honestly. Now here's the practical element. You see, it's all very well for you to sit here and for me to stand in the pulpit and say, here is God's new plan for man. Man can be made anew. Man can be made like Christ. There's a new universe coming. Well, that's all very well in theory. But the test of whether we are Christians is this, that we concentrate upon it. The apostle says that he did. Every Christian does in some measure, in some degree. Let me put it like this. If we would know for certain whether we are true Christians or not, we must simply answer this question. Is this, this matter of becoming what Christ makes it possible for me to be, the biggest thing in my life? If it isn't, I don't see what right we have to say that we are Christians. End quote. The great principle of life is to grow. How do you know that a tree in your backyard is dead when it's not growing anymore? If there once was a time where there appeared to be growth, that's not necessarily proof that you are saved. We see in the parable of the soils that there's four types of seed that get, or four types of ground that the seed of the word falls on. And of those, three of them have growth. Three of them, the seed germinates, it springs up, and there appears to be life. But two of those three fall away. One is shallow. It never really gets into the, the meat of the word. It never really grows depth. And so what appeared to be growth was not true growth at all, and it dies away. Another was choked up by cares of the world, worldliness, concerns of this life. And there was an appearance of growth at first, but slowly, incrementally, that growth gets choked out by things of the world, and eventually it dies completely and there is no growth left. 
the principle of life is to grow. There must be growth in your life if you are to be a, consider yourself a Christian. You must examine your heart, examine your life. Are you growing now? Maybe you grew in the past. Was that that first springing up of the shoot and now it's being choked out? We must be diligent to keep our lives pure and our hearts pure. 2 Peter 1, he gives a list of virtues. It says, you know, supplant your brotherly love with kindness, your kindness with steadfastness. Uh, excuse me, sorry. For this reason, make every effort to supplant your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So we have this list of virtues that should characterize us as Christians. And he says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no resting on your laurels in Christianity. You can't say, oh, I've attained this, and now I must not continue to strive. No, you must always be striving to increase. Increase your affection. Increase your love for one another. Increase your love for Christ. Increase your separation from worldliness. Increase your pursuit of holiness. Increase your love for the lost. Psalm 27.4 says the same thing. The psalmist says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. This is one thing that believers in all ages have always had to concentrate on. One thing that has always had to be our ambition. One thing that we have always had to pursue and strain after. Knowing Christ. Having this fullness of God in our life. So Paul then repeats that he presses on. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So he now begins to say how he does it. He not only does it with concentration, but he does it forgetting what lies behind. Now, there's several ways to look at this. It could be forgetting what happened before he was a believer, and that's certainly true. He didn't let that drag him down as a believer. But I think this is, has to refer in the context to Paul's life as a believer. And he forgot both the bad and the good. He forgot the bad. He didn't let, you know, pre-past failures keep him from striving in the future. Perhaps you've been uneven in your pursuit of Christ-likeness, and the Holy Spirit is that bringing that to bear on you right now, that you have not been single-minded. Maybe you have in the past, and it's been a couple months or weeks or years that you have slipped from that single-minded devotion. Well, as Christ said to the church at Ephesus, you need to repent from where you have fallen, remember and do the works you did at first. But Paul says, you don't need to let that drag you down. You must not say, ah, it's been too long since I've pursued Christ wholeheartedly. It's worthless now. No, you forget that and move on and press on. That's behind. That happened. That's unfortunate. Confess that sin to God, frankly, but then move on and press on. But we not only forget the bad, we forget the good too. Oftentimes, we can become complacent because we feel like we've, we've stored up a good, a good supply of good works. We've done a lot, and we can now rest a little complacent. We can slow down. Uh, we don't need to be as zealous as we were before. But Paul says, I forget what I did before. Now, whatever God may have accomplished through you as a Christian, I doubt that it was more than what he accomplished through the Apostle Paul. Just, just saying. Um, so, if Paul said, I don't count that as being you know, saved up, stored up, I forget about that, and I just press on to gain more, I don't think any of us have a right to say, oh, I've stored up much good in the past as a Christian. I can kind of relax. Maybe, maybe not put on the brakes, but just take my foot off the accelerator and 
and let things coast for a while. Paul says he forgets what lies behind and strains forward to what lies ahead. We must fight to have this mind among ourselves. This is not easy to maintain, but we must strive to have this conception, this understanding. I was thinking about if someone is approaching retirement age and they feel that they, they understand, they've learned that they've been saving and they feel that they have a good, a good nest egg stored up. And they feel that they have enough to make it through however long they'll live in retirement. They're not going to make any special effort to save, to store, to earn extra money. They're going to be pretty satisfied. You know, I can live comfortably for my retirement years. But if someone is approaching retirement and they realize that they have nothing stored up, they got nothing. Do you think they're going to act the same way in how they save, in how they try to earn money? Not at all. They're going to be scraping every penny. They're going to be trying to save up because they know that their capacity to work is going down, and so they must save up everything they can in order to care for themselves as well as they can in later years. That's somewhat what Paul is saying. I don't count I have anything in my bank account stored up for the future. I forget about all that and strain forward to what lies ahead. But this is, this is difficult because our flesh says, our flesh is constantly with us saying, you've done enough, you deserve a break. You've already witnessed to one person this week. You don't need to witness to that person over there. I mean, one person a week, that's pretty good. You, you deserve a break. Our flesh says, you've already been patient with your spouse, with your kids quite a bit this week. You deserve to, to let them know what for a little bit. Just a little, just a little sanctified little bit. Our flesh is always telling these lies to ourselves because the Word of God says that the heart is deceitful above all else. So we must replace, with, replace this with the truth of Scripture. What Christ said in Luke 17.10 that the servants who have been out in the field working, they come back and then they, rather than eating right away, they go and serve their own master and let him eat and then perhaps they can eat. Is there anything special for them? No, he says... After you have done everything, say, we have only done what is our duty. We are but unworthy slaves. Christ has done everything for you, Christian. Brother, sister, what has Christ not done for you? And we do these little things that we really only do by his power and by his working in us. And we think, oh, I've done enough. No, no, you must strain forward. You must strain toward the prize. Verse 14, we see forward fully what he says. I press on, and this is the verb here. He's been just saying how he does it. He does it one thing he does, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. A bit of a long phrase, as Todd does often. Let's take it backward. So we have the call of God in Christ Jesus. This is God's calling of us. How he has called us out of darkness into light. Out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is how he has effectually called us and drawn us to himself. How he set his love upon us before the foundation of the world and then called us to himself. And he called us in Christ Jesus through his mediation, through his sacrifice, and through his work of praying for us and uh, sacrificing for us and living a righteous life for us. The call of God in Christ Jesus. And it's the upward call or the, the heavenward call. This is a call out of sin to holiness. This is a call away from the things of the earth to the things of heaven. Setting our minds not on things below but on things above. This is a call out of sin to the holiness of God. This is not just a a sideways call, slanted call. This is an upward call. We are called to nothing less than the standard of God's perfection. And the prize, the prize of the call, this is what Paul says, is the crown which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, 
and not only to me, but also to all who have loved and appearing. As he says in 2 Timothy 4.8, this is the reward given to each believer for the deeds done in the body, whether good or worthless. This is those cities that in the parables of the minas and the talents, the master set over his servants who had been faithful to make an increase with what they had been given. Brother and sister, sometimes we're lazy and slothful in our pursuit of holiness because we think God is stingy. We wouldn't say it, but we think it's not worth it. By our actions, we say, the little labor, whatever labor it is in this life, isn't going to be paid back to me. It's not worth it. it it'd, be, it'd be too much of an expense now if I really pursued God wholeheartedly and gave up all these things that I like. And it's not really going to get paid back to me in the future. We have a low view of God's generosity. We have a low view of God's goodness. God is a loving God who graciously will reward us. And reward us for what? For doing His will that He enabled us to do. Yet God says that He will reward us for our good service to Him. So don't conceive of God as being stingy. Don't conceive of God as being not going to give you what you deserve. Do you think God is not going to give you? He's a righteous judge. If you do His will, will He not reward you? So where are you with this? Again, none of us is perfect, not even Paul and certainly not I, but is that an excuse or a spur to action? What do we give up? There are many things in life that are neutral, that, aren't, that are lawful. Right? There's, as Christians, there's so many things that are lawful for us to do. Hobbies, sports, family life, enjoyments. But Paul says that not all those things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. So how are you spending your time? Are you spending things on spending your time on things that are profitable or are things that are merely lawful and don't really have eternal benefits? I alluded above to the judgment at the Bema seat where Christ will judge us as Christians for what we've done in the body, not to condemnation, but for reward. And there are those who have done works of gold, silver, and precious stones, things of eternal value, and those will survive the testing of fire and those will receive a reward. But then there is also the works of wood, hay, and stubble that will be burned up in the fire. And the believer who does those works, who has those works to show, will be saved, but as though through fire. You're going to come into heaven smelling like smoke, as someone has said. You'll come into heaven, but it would not necessarily be as you would desire or as Christ would have necessarily desired. Because you had done these things that are, the text says, is worthless. It doesn't mean that they're bad. They just don't have really value to them. They're not really profitable. So where at you with this? Are you at with this? Paul said in verse 11, it's somewhat of a paraphrase, but it captures the sense well in the ESV, that by any means possible... I may attain. So Paul will use any means to attain. And God has given us many means to achieve Christ-likeness, to reach toward this goal. And we've talked about some of them in this series. These are the means of grace, the ordinary means of grace. Prayer, the preaching of the Word, the reading of the Word, singing the Word, discipleship, fellowship, baptism, the Lord's table. These are all means that God has given us so that we can become like Christ, that we can be conformed to the image of His Son. So how are you pursuing those means? Now you may have noticed in that list that many of those are tied up in the local church, preaching, fellowship, discipleship. These are all things that are tied up in with the local church. We're not going to go through all those means of grace, don't worry. We don't have time for that. Perhaps in the discussion afterwards. 
but the local church is key. Now, obviously, you're here right now, so you are at least to some extent pursuing these, this means of grace, these means of grace that come through the local church. But how strenuously are you pursuing these means? Are you forgetting and straining toward reaching with all your might to these means? I'm not going to lay down a fixed rule that you need to be here every time the doors are open. But let me put the question to you this way. What does it take to pull you away from this body, to pull you away from this fellowship? Do you have to be laid up on your back and unable to get out of bed? Okay. Or is it easy to pull you away from this fellowship? Is a child's sports event sufficient? Or is it sufficient that, oh, a child is sick, he has a runny nose, I guess everybody, the whole family needs to stay home. What does it take to pull you away from the fellowship of Christ's bride? Is it easy or is it hard? Do you go, oh, I I was there three times a month, that should be good. Or are you straining forward? And it's not just that you are here, just saying, oh, you need to be here. That would be simple externalism. Christ cares about the heart. How do you come to church? Do you come ready? Have you, as Hebrews 10 says, considered how to stir up your brothers and sisters to love and good deeds? Have you thought about those people who sit next to me most of the time? What can I say to them before or after the service that will make them pursue Christ more? Is there a comment I can make? Is there a conversation I can engage in? What can I do so that the people who sit around me are more like Christ because of what God has done through me? Are you coming ready to receive the Word? James 1 says that we are to receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save our souls. So are you coming with meekness? Are you coming with humility? Ready? Whatever the Word of God says, you've resolved beforehand I'm going to believe it. I'm going to trust it. I'm going to obey it. I'm going to do what it says. Again, none of us is perfect in this. But this is what we must be striving toward. This is the the goal. This is the objective, the target. Again, how do you come to sing? Do you come ready to worship? Or do you come concerned about other things and it takes all three songs before you finally kind of gotten your mind off your hobbies, your work, whatever else you may be concerned about. Or maybe you never even get off those topics. Maybe you're thinking about your hobbies, the things that you enjoy all through the sermon. So that's just one, perhaps we could probe further. But you need to take this Seriously, this is what Paul says. We need to be ready to receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit and to respond to it. Then verse 15 says, Let those of us who are mature, literally perfect, those of us who the sense is really mature, let those of us who are mature think in this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Now, I remember the first time I read this verse seriously, I was a bit taken aback by the direct way of speaking and thought, oh, huh, well, I don't think in that way, clearly. So I guess God will reveal that to me. You know, actually, He did. God's Word is true. God will not let His children stagnate they are true children, they will grow. The principle of life is to grow. If you are God's child, He's not going to leave you and let you just stagnate as a stunted believer. He's going to bring you along. If your flesh has been rising up as you've listened and resisted this call of Scripture to a holy life and a zealous pursuit of that life, you've probably... Your mind has been filled with excuses as to why this probably doesn't apply to you or why some hobby of yours, some 
weight that hinders that you like is not bad, but does it really do anything for Christ? Does it really bring you to greater maturity? You've been probably thinking about why that can kind of skate by, why you don't need to take care of that, why you don't need to trim that back or maybe get rid of it altogether. I know this because my own heart is deceptive. My own heart tells me these things. My own flesh is lazy and slothful and sinful and wants to not pursue holiness. But what are you going to do with that sense in your flesh? Are you going to maybe just ignore it and then let it kind of sit there and then just eventually you'll forget about this sermon and then you will never actually take action? Or are you going to apply the Word of God that you're hearing to it and tell the flesh, no, I'm crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires, as Paul says in Galatians 6, and I'm going to live as the Word of God calls me to live. This is the mark of the mature believer. Not so much how far he has come, but how fast he is moving and how quickly he's accelerating in that direction. God, as I said, will bring his children to maturity. Does God will reveal that also to you? Now, you may think, oh, well then, oh, God's going to do it. <laughs> I'm off the hook in that one. But no. How does God bring his children to maturity when they're being stubborn in their sins? He disciplines them. And it's a loving discipline. It's a discipline that is meant to bring us along. But why would you invite the discipline of God into your life by resisting his call to holiness? Why would you be stubborn like the Israelites of old and invite his punishments and his corrective rod? Why not come willingly? Verse 16, he continues, Only let us hold true to what we have attained, or the, the standard to which we have reached. So we're straining toward the prize, we're straining toward more maturity, reaching out to get more of Christ. But we must hold true to what we've attained. And this is saying, God is progressively, as he's alluded to in the above verse, God's going to reveal to you more of his word, more of his law, more of what you need to be doing and more of the ways that you're not walking in conformity with his law. That's one of the works of the Holy Spirit. He shows us progressively more and more of ways we're not living up to the law of God and the ways that we need to be. And he does that primarily through his word. And as he does that, there'll be a higher and higher standard, more and more of a standard that God has revealed to you. But God is not going to reveal to you more of how you need to live up to his law, how you need to conform to the image of Christ if you're ignoring what he's already showed you. If there's an area of your life where you know what the word of God says and you know what you ought to be doing, and you're resisting that, you're not doing that wholeheartedly, God's not going to help bring you along, reveal to you more areas you can grow, because what are you doing with what he's already showed you? So we need to hold true, we need to hold fast to what God has revealed to us. Maybe God, just this morning, has revealed to you more of the standard that you need to hold true to. Well, God's now revealed that to you. You're now accountable to hold fast to that standard as you strain towards more. Again, we could look at the means that God's given us to do this. Are you zealously pursuing those means? Would someone who looks at your life, perhaps an unbeliever, say, yeah, they're kind of crazy, but she's all in. 
you know, you can just see in her life, you ask her what, oh, what did you do on the weekend? Oh man, let me tell you about how great church was. How the sermon, how God just pierced my heart and showed me my sin and showed me where there's areas where I need to be conformed to His image. Let me tell you about how I was able to have this glorious fellowship with other believers who've been ransomed out of this world and who have encouraged me in what they said to me and how they're praying for me and how I'm praying for them. How, how was, oh, how was last evening? Oh, let me tell you about what God told me in small group. Let me tell you about how I've been studying this passage and how God's been showing me how I need to live and how God's been teaching me this truth. Is that what unbelievers in your life would say, that, that you're all in? Is that, is that the testimony of your life? Is that the characteristic of your life? So then he says, 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul was a great example. Even he wasn't a perfect example, but he's a great example, and we can see his example in the New Testament. And we can see other examples. There are many examples in this church of those who are straining hard after Christ. Look for those people. Who can you imitate in this church? Or maybe someone else that you know that's not in this church. Who in your life makes you a little bit uncomfortable with how much they're pursuing Christ-likeness? Go to that person and say, I want to imitate you. I want to be discipled by you so that I can be more like Christ, so that I can follow your example of imitating Christ. Because I know you're not perfect, but I see you're, that you are pursuing Christ faster than I am, and I want you to help me pursue Christ faster. Are you joining and imitating the example? That's one of the means, discipleship and fellowship. That is how we zealously pursue this. So I know these are difficult truths at times to hear. Our, our flesh, as I said, does not like these truths. And it's often difficult to maintain this. You can come out of a sermon and say, ah, yes, I'm all in, then next day, sometimes next hour, you realize, no, I'm not there yet. So we need to help each other. We need to spur each other on. We need to encourage one another and ask ourselves, how are you doing? How was this past week? You know, there's that future judgment of Christ where he will judge us for what we've done in the body. But it can be very helpful to have something a little bit closer. We have a hard time thinking long term. But ask your friends and family. Ask the people around you at church. How have you been doing this past week in pursuing Christ wholeheartedly? Has there been one thing you've been doing this week in straining for the goal of the prize? As we do that, I can tell you there's nothing that helps more than knowing, like, oh, I could do this thing that's fun, but it's not really worthwhile. And like, oh, no, I know that my brother in Christ, my sister in Christ is going to ask me tomorrow if I've been straining wholly after Christ, and I need to be able to give an honest answer. So brothers and sisters, let's, let's pursue Christ. He has done everything for us. This is the goal. This is the prize. He will repay us generously. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for salvation in Christ. Thank you that we can do nothing, that all of our efforts toward earning your righteousness are garbage. Thank you, Lord, that you have grasped us and help us, Lord, to live true to the calling that we have been called to more and more every day. Lord, we need your grace, we need your help, we need your strength, and we need your church. Help us, and help us to help each other. 
Let your sun shine through us as brightly as possible, Lord. That is our prayer. That is our aim. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.